Hello and welcome to Disruptive Voices, a podcast series exploring the triumphs, frustrations and learnings of women working in fintech. I'm Kimberly Long, age editor at The Banker, and this episode is From Startups to Unicorns, Making Your Own Way. The driving force of the fintech sector is startups, yet according to 2020 figures from Deloitte, just 7% globally are fronted by women. In this episode, the women who have taken the step to set up their own companies talk about why they decided to strike out alone, the availability of skilled workers, and the issues they have faced as a woman trying to build a fintech from the ground up. In this first chapter, I'm speaking with Muma Sinkala, CEO of Kripia, which supports informal SMEs in Zambia. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. To start with, why did you decide to found Kripia and what was your career experience that led you to this point? Hmm, that's a very loaded question. Okay, so firstly, there's many answers, but the first one is I hate injustice. Mm. Um, I looked at the amount of injustice that's happening in the financial industry globally, but in Africa alone, it's just mortifying. Um, as a person who comes from a single parent family, I had a mom who had a business that was informal. Mm. And this was not unique to my mom. I've got mm. many aunties, many fr- many friends of mine whose parents are also in informal businesses, but those businesses are what put them through school. So whilst these businesses may look informal and small, they were capable of taking people's children from Africa in- as international students in the UK, mm. across the globe. That's a lot of money. But the problem that I saw was that these businesses were not scaling. Mm -hmm. They all stayed at the same level Mm. for years and years and years till today. And I noticed that this is not only a a personal problem, but it's like a problem everywhere. Mm. Um, I started doing some research. My colleagues and I, who decided to found this uh, company, we started doing some research and we found some shocking statistics. Mm. So, for example, um, the informal sector alone in Zambia, which is a country with over 19 million people, makes up about 87.7% of all employment. Wow, yeah. And over 60% of these have no access to uh, formal financial services. And we were like, this is crazy. What can we do about this? So... After a whole lot of um, interviews and asking informal businesses what is it that they needed help with the most, the thing that they needed the most was access to finance. Mm. And we were like, let's just start. And that's what we did. Um, In terms of my background, I have over 20 years experience in banking. I worked in retail, like straight from the bottom as a cashier. Mm -hmm. And then I worked in fraud. I worked in corporate banking, in technology and operations. So I feel like... I was perfectly suited because my background had equipped me to be able to face all the challenges like within the financial industry, I think. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like the financial industry is kind of uniform globally. Mm. Um, the challenges may be a little bit different, but I feel like the solutions can be applied if you are a person who follows like agile methods. You can mm. be agile and like apply something that works here mm-hmm. and make it work here. And that's what we started with. Yeah, and so it's such a, a the combination really of your own professional experience and your lived experience came yeah. together to, you know, you were able to identify pain points yeah. and come up with a solution to help solve that. Exactly. Yeah. And on to the next point then around actually that beginning, that process. What was your experience of creating a startup? Like mm-hmm. I would have no idea where to begin. <laughs> and how do you manage running Crypia from the UK as well? Like you say, it's, it's focused in Zambia. Oh, the experience of creating a startup. 
I'm I'm not gonna lie. The experience of starting a startup was like um, it was very difficult mm-hmm. because I I had started businesses before mm-hmm. prior, so I think I had like entrepreneur experience. My mother's an entrepreneur, so I've always had like an entrepreneurial background like throughout my whole life. So mm-hmm. I th- I think I kind of had the foundations of what it took to start a business you know, how to bring people together. My personality is a I'm an extrovert and I love doing communal work, like bringing people together. And like I said, I hate injustice. So I think the part of bringing people together was a little bit easier, but the other operational parts of starting a business were things I just did not anticipate. Um, you asked me, how does it feel? What's your experience of creating a startup? I feel like it's like an onion. There's mm. so many layers <laughs> to it. Like once you peel one layer, you find another layer and yeah. another layer. And there were many challenges that we were unprepared for that we did not anticipate. And it's not what the challenges that we weren't prepared for aren't what people would think of. Like I'm a woman, I'm black, things like that. It was less than, it was not even that. The challenges were financial the challenges were no lack of data Mm. no data actually like no proper data exists about the informal sector in africa like all the data that you see on google is not true Mm. it's just um small points of data that different people have collected but it doesn't represent whole the whole continent it doesn't represent countries Zambia would operate differently in an informal sector from Zimbabwe, yeah. from Ghana, from Nigeria. So the data doesn't really reflect like the work on the ground and how mm. these people work. So those challenges were not what I anticipated. Mm-hmm. That was very difficult. Um, but like I say, it's an onion. As you peel it, you're able to pivot and create products that actually suit what the people need on the ground rather than what you envisioned in your mind. And I think that was also one of our biggest strengths. When we began Creepier, we decided to put aside our opinions Mm. and our ideas, Mm. what we felt people needed, Mm. and change as we go. So we said we're going to be a very dynamic and iterative company that allows ourselves to be able to um, allow our um, our business model to shift and change according to what was needed on the ground. So, yeah, it was both a baptism of fire, like very difficult and exciting mm-hmm. and challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I would say. And then, so also, what what do you think are the challenges then of running a fintech that's based on a completely different continent oh, from the UK? Gosh, do you know what's funny? Um, it's very challenging, I'm mm-hmm. not going to lie. The time differences, the teams being in different spaces, it's very challenging. But I feel like now's the time for people to create organizations like ours. Mm. Now is the time uh, for companies to be able to allow their workers to work from home, to be able to work from any location. If you're using digital um, resources to to create new products, you should be able to also adapt the social uh, cultural changes that go with it. And whilst it's been challenging, I feel like it's been an opportunity, an opportunity to evolve and create a culture that we actually want. We've all worked in various uh, like organizations. I've worked in major banks, in smaller fintechs, and other you know financial organizations. And I know exactly what I do not want to um, emulate from mm. those organizations. And I know what, as a woman, as a woman of color, um, as a person who's got friends who've experienced um, dis- being disadvantaged in any way, I decided that if we're going to be creating, you know, this organization is going to be very forward looking and forward looking looks like if we're saying that, okay, half the world 
is has not yet adopted digital uh, tools, hmm. we need to be creating companies that reflect that. So, yeah. and change is difficult. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. When you're mm. doing something new, it doesn't mean that people are going to adopt it immediately. Mm. It means that you have to sometimes ride ride the wave and um, just do it, like Nike says. You know, just try it, yeah. just do it, and that's the motto that I take with this. So whilst it's been challenging having different time zones, I feel like it's also been easy for me because I was prepared to um, to go with the flow and see mm-hmm. what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then. Onto the next point, which you kind of already touched on this a bit, but I think like just drilling down into like your experience of being like a female founder, what was the the most difficult parts of this? And, you know, we've touched on like different aspects of like being a woman, being a woman of color in this industry. What do you think the industry needs to be doing better? Ooh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the- everyone's going to have a different answer to this, but I'm going to ask everybody. How do question. I even begin? Like <laughs> this answer is too loaded. Let me think. <laughs> industry need to be doing better what do they not need to you know okay the industry needs policies that do more than um just a gesture Mm. i feel like it's different saying we need more women on a board we need more women um in finance uh i feel like the industry needs to do better in getting women into positions of power Mm. and i say this on my linkedin as well we need more women in positions of decision making because it's different from having a woman as a manager having a woman as a graduate that's all nice and it's great but if the leadership that exists at the top does nothing to change themselves so they can have more diverse Mm. thought processes and more diverse challenges as well Mm -hmm. it makes it difficult like it's all just talk if they keep saying we need change and it will keep being like policies being put in place but they actually like don't work and another thing I would really like to say in the industries, I feel like um, what we believed about knowledge a long time ago has changed. And the industry needs to change as well. So, for example, for me, I truly believe that indigenous knowledge is knowledge. Mm. But it's always put aside as mm. not important and not knowledge. And the industry needs to recognize that um, in order for you to create products or to create change, you need to understand the why. What's the problem that we're solving and why are we trying to solve it? And understand that a problem more than affects one person. It affects Mm. multiple people. Mm -hmm. So you're not just going to be affecting like educated people or just informal people. Mm -hmm. It's people from different cultures. How are you creating products that, for example, benefit migrant, you know, communities that benefit people who've gone to like posh schools, people who've not got, you know, how are you creating products and an industry in at large that thinks about all those things and is quite dynamic and able to change as the time goes. The problem in the finance industry, in my opinion, even having worked in the other organizations I've worked in, is all this legacy, bureaucracies, even just with st- beginning from the systems that exist. Multi- like the majority of banks still use legacy systems yeah. even till today. And yeah. that's a huge issue because yeah. you've got a whole like world that's gone through a pandemic and has completely changed, and yet you've got companies still largely using legacy systems like that's crazy (laughs) yeah you know and when you ask about why change isn't like moving so fast the biggest issue is bureaucracy is you know we're so they're so afraid but I feel like fear holds people back and I feel the industry needs to create global policies that not not only policies that like benefit the west like you know you've got psd2 and all these Mm. directives open banking that are great for the west but what about africa 
we've got a perfect example of what happened with SV Bank and all the other financial scandals that happen that begin in the West and end up affecting the whole world. And the same thing, vice versa. When something is happening in Africa, it ends up affecting the world. So if we're creating policies, why are we only looking to create a policy that will benefit the financial industry in the West? Yeah. Why, yeah. Are we, why, are the, why is the financial industry in the West not working with the financial industry in Africa? Mm-hmm. How do we do that? But also in a very respectful way, because there's something to be said about one of the reasons why we decided to start Cripia was the financial products or financial organizations that exist today are great, but they work at a, from a Western perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But then that means it completely leaves out like 80 or to 90% of people mm-hmm. who still apply indigenous methods or African methods of finance. People don't even know there's such a thing as African methods of finance. They don't even know what like that thing exists. If there's African methods of finance, it totally means there's Asian methods of finance. Yeah. That looks like how your grandmother used to bank. Yeah. How does she pass that on to you as a grandchild? What are the behaviors that then affect you? What are the behaviors that you have when you think about money? How do you have to overcome certain things? Challenges, whether you're a migrant or, you know, there's so much t- they should think about when they're creating policies. And I think it should be from a global perspective rather than just, you know, we're in the West and this is great for us. And also, from an African perspective, what needs to change, um, the industry needs to do better, the financial industry in Africa, is remove the jargon, remove the, uh, again, I'll say bureaucracies or restrictive regulation that exists that makes it very difficult for fintechs to scale up or to level up and do the work that they need to do. Instead, I feel that huge organizations need to partner with fintechs. There's, there's enough, I feel, food for everyone there's enough products innovation and i feel that um competition really really breeds great um products it mm. breeds innovation and the yep. perfect example we have are organizations like microsoft and apple and look at yeah. how amazing they've been to each other in terms of innovation mm. because they compete and this is we need more competition on the market yeah we need um huge organizations in finance really working together with fintechs to create the industry that we want to mm-hmm. see 10 years from now, 20 yeah. years from now. And that also doesn't mean that um, you need to give them free things. Most fintechs are willing to work on their own if you can just give them a plug, give them mm-hmm. a partnership, work with us in this. And then they're able to make their own money and create more innovation yeah. and scale up. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, that's a, certainly a lot of food for thought for the industry there. But, I mean, it's great to hear that and have that experience as well from your side. So... And then to the final question I have for you now, and this is a bit of a a change in tack, but I mean, actually, this was something when I was researching the women I wanted to speak to for this podcast, and I'm like looking on LinkedIn, looking online, and one thing that really jumped out at me is like, these are women who have got like multiple hats that they wear, and a lot also are very focused on supporting charities and different organizations, and you are absolutely no different, so you're just about to launch a financial literacy program for the unbanked and the, the, the diaspora community. And you're also on the board for Women for Refugee Women, which is like an organization I'm quite familiar with. Um, I was at a talk and I can't remember the founder's name, but I was she was at a talk recently and I was at it. So, you know, it's um, it's such an important um, organization. I mean, what areas of financial education support do you find that these communities need most? They know the, what, what is lacking, what the people need to help them to become more financially capable, I suppose. Mm. Again, a loaded question. <laughs> um, so, 
I think, yes, the founder of Women for Refugee Women is Natasha Waters. Absolutely yes. amazing. She's brilliant. <laughs> I think she's a correspondent for The Guardian or something. Mm. Used to be. She's an amazing lady. And I think what she did with starting Women for Refugee Women was just phenomenal. And you, you mentioned that um, before I go ahead into Women for Refugee Women, mm-hmm. we at Creepia are creating a financial literacy program and a diaspora um, lending platform. The whole point is we want to create more than like companies that just, you know, we've created a product. It's mm-hmm. about not just giving people fishes. We want to teach them how to fish. Yeah. And that means sustainability. Like, you know, how do we sus- make this whole industry sustainable in the future so that other younger people who are coming along will be thinking in terms of 50 years from now, 100 yeah. years from now. And, you know, I feel with everything else that I do, like I mentioned in the first question that you asked me, why did we cre- create Creepy? And I mm-hmm. said, I hate injustice. Yeah, You see it as to why I sit on the board of women for refugee women. Yeah, I feel that it's truly, truly important for all of us to understand what our purpose here is on this earth mm-hmm. and what contribution we want to make. And Women for Refugee Women do amazing work supporting refugees, asylum seekers, uh, based in London and other areas of England. Mm-hmm. And I would say, please go and support us. Go donate. Mm-hmm. Do what you need to do. Because each you, I believe in something called Ubuntu mm-hmm. in Southern Africa. Ubuntu means I am who I am mm-hmm. because of you. Mm-hmm. And you are who you are because of me. We're basically all who we are because of each other. Mm-hmm. If a cleaner didn't exist, the building wouldn't be clean. You mm-hmm. won't be able to be a journalist. You won't be, you know, we all, it's this ecosystem that exists for us mm-hmm. to be able to work together and sustain ourselves as human beings. At the core of everything we do, whether we're making products or helping people, is humanity at the core of it. doesn't matter that you're in the finance industry or I'm in the charity sector. And Women for Refugee Women, I feel that is proving that the amount of work that we do with the ladies that we support mm-hmm. It's truly important for us to know that we're supporting them. But these are people, first of all, they've got their own lives, where they come from. Most of them were very successful where they come yeah. from. And it just so happened that they their lives ended up being disrupted by mm. things outside their control, politics yeah. or whatever things that they ran from. And whilst they're here in this country, it's up to us to also support them. What does support look like? You know, asylum seekers need hardship grants. Most of the times when a person is an asylum seeker, they have no recourse to public funds. So that means they cannot get, um, uh, they're not able to get benefits. They get a very small, minimal amount yep. of money to support them weekly. If you're asking yourself, okay, how do I support them without, you know, maybe one of the things people are very worried about is I'm not able to trace if this money is really going to the women. We are a very open organization. You're able to come and see our accounts are very open. Come to the organization, reach out to Women for Refugee Women, donate directly. Or there's many other things that we do. We've got classes where we support these women through the South Bank Center. They, you know, they do art. They do so many different things. You can support us, you know, in that manner. In terms of financial literacy, there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done in that because other than asylum seekers, you've got people who are refugees. So those are people who've been able to get their stay in the UK and maybe they're able to work. Um, a lot of the times people need support with like their budgeting. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're an accountant or a person who's really good at finance, mm-hmm. you can give your expertise. You can yeah. come and teach a class or, you know, on financial literacy. Because again, knowledge is more important than the amount that you can give somebody. Yeah. Because if they are armed with the knowledge that they need, they're then able to have more agency over their lives. And yeah, basically that's the work that we do with Women for Refugee Women. And I'm so proud of it. 
and I really hope we can have more supporters of this program. We always need volunteers, so please yep. come along. And just lastly, going back to Kripia, I say that we are going to be having a program that's coming up for financial literacy. Mm -hmm. The whole point of the program is to be able to more than just give um, loans or create financial products for people, but to actually equip them with actual financial knowledge that is suited to them, how they do things as Africans. And we're going to be launching that in a couple of weeks. So please go onto our site. If you are looking to invest directly into small businesses whom we've vetted, you can go onto our site as well and join our wait list. Awesome. What a note to finish on. And, you know, I will let you go because it sounds like you've got plenty of things to be working on <laughs> at all so times. Um, but thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Kimberly. And I hope I'll come back again. Yeah. Thank you. Welcome to this second chapter. I'm speaking with Nina Mohanty, founder and CEO of Bloom Money. Nina, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Kimberly. So Bloom Money is based on a concept of a savings club. Can you explain a bit to the listeners how that works and why you decided to develop it as a fintech? Absolutely. So Bloom Money's first product um, is actually something that is a digitized version of a savings club that is known all around the world by different names. Mm -hmm. So it's academically known as a ROSCA or mm. a Rotating Savings and Credit Association um, and people might know these as different names depending on their cultures. Mm -hmm. So I actually grew up with this from my parents mm -hmm. and my grandparents before them using them. And so in India, we call it chit funds, uh, kind of depending where you are in the country, big country, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and my mother in Taiwan, um, she and her family call it hui. So it's called hui or he hui um, in Taiwan and China and various other Chinese-speaking places. But when I first moved to the UK... I kept meeting people who came from different cultures, different ethnic backgrounds. And I'd say, oh, I'm taking part in this thing. It's mm. like a savings club. And I remember the first time I spoke to someone who was Jamaican British. And he said, oh, yeah, we, we do that, too. We call it Pardna. Mm. Um, we've been doing this for ages. And mm. I started kind of going down the rabbit hole, found that actually a lot of the um, Windrush generation were able to buy homes using these, which they call Pardna. Um, and then I started speaking to friends who were... Nigerian, who call it Ajo or Isusu, depending on their tribe, or Somalis, who call it Hegbad. Mm -hmm. And just really realizing quite quickly that everyone is taking part in it. And so our overall mission at Bloom is very much focused on how can we give immigrant communities the tools they need to build generational wealth. And one of the reasons, or one of the big gripes that I have with the financial system is that we often try to make people fit into our our ideal of what the perfect customer looks like. So actually, our financial system in the West in particular is very much built for uh, very privileged uh, straight white men, to be quite yeah. frank. Yeah. And so if you're a woman, if you're gay, if you're an immigrant, um, if you're elderly, we just don't really know what to do with you. And so the thinking with Bloom Money, especially with our first product, with these savings clubs, was actually, how can we digitize an existing behavior that mm -hmm. you already have? Which mm -hmm. is why we landed on these savings clubs, because they're already done all around us. They're very analog. People use pen and paper. They, you know, are calling people up or using WhatsApp groups to manage these. And so we thought, actually, if we digitize them and formalize them, that actually leads to very interesting opportunities in terms of the data that we start to collect, 
and what we can build in terms of products and services on top of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the first chapter of this, uh, this episode, I was talking to Muma and she was telling me about how she's got such a strong focus on kind of financial inclusion and also on education. And I know this is something as well that this is part of your ethos too you've got a whole section on the website which is dedicated to financial education and support for people who've recently arrived in the UK so how important is this to the overall brand as well as not just kind of providing it as a an additional kind of service but like overall like is this really part of integral to what you are absolutely absolutely so I'm an immigrant here but my parents were also um, immigrants before me to the Mm. US my father's from India my mother's from Taiwan And I often use my own life experience Mm -hmm. as an anecdote for what we're trying to build at Bloom. My parents immigrated and after they met, you know, had me and my brother. And they had a leg up because they knew what to do with their money. And by this, I mean, actually, my aunt had immigrated before my mother. And they had lots of friends who were earning enough that they actually were privileged enough to have financial advisors. Mm -hmm. And so it got to the point where when I was born and then my brother was born, my mother had the advice secondhand from my aunt to say, actually, you should open up a 529, which is a tax-efficient investment vehicle in the mm-hmm. States for education. You should open one um, and start you know, putting money into it for Nina and for my brother later. And it's little things like this of just knowing what to do with your money or knowing that there is something you can do with it or somewhere you can put it that is more tax efficient or things like that, which a lot of people don't have the privilege of knowing about. And I think when we talk about fintech, we've been saying for a decade now, like we're here to democratize financial services, whatever that means, right? Yeah. But actually, it's no good democratizing for people who already have a fairly good understanding of Mm -hmm. how finance and personal finance works. And so we're trying to give people the education that they need up front. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the barriers that immigrants have right up front is just getting to grips with living in a new place, Mm. right? Like I've lived in France, I've lived in Austria, I've lived here. Mm. Coming here, I mean, like in when you move to Austria, you have to like fill out all these forms and like register with the local council. You have to, you know, you have your special identity cards and everything. And similarly here, it's like registering with a GP, Right. There are little things that you don't really think that you need to do, but actually longer term will have knock on effects. And so what we're trying to do is holistically look at the immigrant experience Mm. and try and help from day one with valuable information, which also then lends itself to that feeling of trust. Because Mm -hmm. we know we talk about this all the time with financial services, especially when you are serving consumers it's all about trust. And that's kind of why I think banks are still doing so well for themselves is because they still have the trust of the public. And so it's a lot harder for a fintech company that doesn't have, you know, a big, strong, sturdy building with marble pillars in front of it to build trust. Yeah. So we're trying to kind of say, here, have this information, have it for free, learn the things that you need to learn, we're actually also translating it as mm-hmm, well right mm-hmm. now because when we talk about financial literacy, yeah. literacy is also fluency in a common language. And yeah. here that's English. So if you don't know English as your first language or second or third, financial information can be very jargony. And we want yeah. to be able to remove that and make it far more accessible. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, with something as, as kind of as heavy as, as financial language, I mean, there's even 
obviously in my job, like I'll come across a phrase or a term like, I don't know what that means and I need to look that up. But, you know, if you are coming into this, like if you're learning a second language, kind of learning the detail of Mm -hmm. what different things mean is like way down the list of when you get taught these things. That's why I'm in awe of my own parents. Like English is their third, fourth language. And so the fact that they were able to scrimp and save and and build wealth for themselves is even more impressive Mm -hmm. to me. And to... Of course, all of the immigrants around the world that have overcome those language barriers to build the wealth that they do have. Yeah, amazing. So then we're going to move on to your experience now of founding Blue Money. So (laughs) how was that experience and what was the experience really of taking it from your concept to the present day stage that you have now? Yeah, so... Um, for context, we actually have launched our beta. Mm-hmm. It's available on test flight for iOS and in Android App Store. And actually, that was something that we're really proud of because actually sometimes you get fintech companies only building for iOS. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a certain demographic of people who are using Apple products. Oh, yeah. Purely, yeah. Right? You're like, I was waiting around, like, when's the Android version going to Oh, 100%. I mean, it's like even, like, with my, with my just a complete segue now, but, like, with, with my role when I talk about, like, you know, mobile money and smartphones in Asia and things like that, and people assume it's an iPhone. Like, no, there's, like, it, you know, smartphones in India being made that cost, like, you know, £50 or something, and that Android, and they have that functionality, but, yeah. Anyway, and it actually, <laughs> a majority of the world, smartphones are Android. Mm-hmm. So, just fun fact there. Yeah. Um. So from ideation to now, it was a pretty long process, actually, in that I'm a firm believer that there's no point in a solution in search of a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I really struggle when entrepreneurs kind of go out and say, I've got this idea, and I turn it on them and ask them, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? And so for me, I spent a lot of time, starting in actually 2019, It was just very casual research at first, but then I do come from a world of academia. So I started to put a bit of structure around it, a methodology around speaking to people. I ended up speaking to 96 people across 40 nationalities, trying to understand, in short, how do you manage your money? And it was all immigrant communities. And I learned so much. But this is where I landed on those key pain points of, you know, access to credit, lack of understanding of the formal financial system. And then this, you know, kind of overarching thing of we have these informal systems, but how do we get the informal systems to the formal system? Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't necessarily that I thought, oh, I've been doing this thing and my parents have done it and my grandparents have done it. Let's just go with it. It was rather I keep seeing that this is a common behavior and it's being used right now as kind of a hack to get on with people's lives, but they aren't getting anything from it. There's no benefits from it. And in a world where data is the new oil, they absolutely need to be able to transition into the formal financial system. So off the back of that, I'm someone who loves data. So then we went and did an additional survey. Um, My goodness, the VCs were kind of like, how do you have so much information? And I said, well, I have to, don't I? Um, I'm a woman. Mm. But... We, we did another survey and tried to understand, like, actually, is this something that people would be interested in using? And then went on to build a no-code uh, web app. That was interesting because, obviously, you have to be very careful about the lines, of, and especially when we're talking about a regulated space. And then from there, we went to, to raise funding. And so kind of went down that route of raising venture capital, which we have since raised, and building out a team. So 
I actually tapped one of my brilliant coworkers from Buds, an open banking platform. He and I met working um, back then, and we're very bullish on open banking and the future of open finance. But we just got on so well, and so I kind of tapped him and said, "This is a thing that I'm working about. I'm working on. What do you think?" And it was kind of to that uh, lovely co-founder tipping point where one day I got a text from him and it was like quite late at night and he mm. said, I can't stop thinking about this. So <laughs> I was thinking this and this and this. And that's when I said, I've got him. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> he ended up leaving uh, Bud to join Bloom from mm -hmm. Bud to Bloom. And we we were two people for the longest time. And then we onboarded um, a front end engineer. We have been a small team the entire time. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the the overarching thing is I love to be near the people we're trying to serve. Mm -hmm. I live in Lewisham, mm -hmm. um, huge immigrant communities yeah. there. I spend time, you know, in Peckham, in Brixton. Um, I love being around migrant communities. Mm -hmm. It's just so much more vibrant and colorful as well. But mm -hmm. uh, the food's better, I would say, as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but because I live, you know, right there, it's all on my doorstep. I'm so lucky that it's not a question of are you speaking to your customers enough? It's like, who am I going to speak to today? And so that's been the common thread throughout our product development is actually, is this interesting to you? Would you use this? What don't you like about this? What features do you want to see involved? And so that's where we got to where we are today. We've definitely rolled with the punches. It's been a difficult year for Everyone, of course, um, you know, SVB, mm -hmm. Rails Bank, mm -hmm. all, a lot of things going on. But we're really excited that we are now out there in beta and, and excited for what that allows us to do next. Mm -hmm. We've also received an Innovate UK grant. Oh, so that's great. Yeah. Delightful mm -hmm. and wonderful to see that the government is supporting businesses that are trying to be innovative. Yeah. So we're actually taking this concept of the savings club and, and the data that we're collecting to now understand what can be done with that data. Can we start to understand the financial behavior of our customers mm -hmm. better? And what does that lead to in terms of products and services? Yeah, great. And it's interesting you've just mentioned about the receiving the funding and also um, you said about your VCs as well. Mm. And that's kind of onto my final question. You know, we hear so much about the lack of funding for female founders kind of globally. Mm. What was your experience and what do you think the industry could be doing better to help more female founders kind of get these ideas off the ground? Well, I think, isn't there a statistic somewhere that globally um, small business owners are majority women. So women, there's this misconception that women can't or won't or don't run businesses. And mm. actually we we know for a fact that empirically that is not the case. Um, I think as well, like it's kind of a, a, a almost like a, the businesses that are considered businesses and not. Because I just think about kind of growing up in Liverpool, the amount of women I knew who ran hairdressers, nail salons, Oh my goodness. Beauty services. Yeah. It's all a small business. It's all a small business and women are very, very good. We've seen demonstrably at providing returns and making do with what they have. It is interesting. It was difficult. I won't lie. Um, I I jokingly talk about this triple threat and that I'm a woman of color building for communities of color. And so especially in the Western world, that makes for a lot of confusion. I faced a lot of racism, a lot of sexism, sadly. But I think what was great is people almost started to tell on themselves. Yeah. And 
back then I I wasn't confident enough to actually say no I don't this this is going to be a good fit yeah I actually turned away uh, turned down a few term sheets mm. because I felt that actually this is not going to be a good relationship or you're not in this for the right reason and it then gave me a proxy to better understand who do I want to be on this journey with because when you are raising venture capital funding or any any type of investment you know they the joke is that it's this relationship is going to last longer than a marriage so yeah. you better be happy with who you're getting into bed with and so it was it's no coincidence that you know uh, about half our cap table is women mm -hmm, by volume. Mm -hmm. uh, more than that, actually. Half are first or second generation immigrants and people of color. Yeah. And this is this is important to me. And I think when we talk about women mm -hmm. and raising venture capital, there is no shortage of women who have big, bold ideas, visions, problems that they want to solve. I do believe, though, that the way that women communicate is different. And we have been so used to funding companies and funding people who speak and communicate in a very specific way. I feel uncomfortable lying, right? Like, sorry, I'm, I'm never going to lie to you in a pitch. It makes me uncomfortable. Now, you know, whether there are founders out there who are male who feel more comfortable lying or embellishing, fine, whatever, um, maybe that's part of the reason. I think also it was interesting. I, I did a lot of early boot camps and like you know get fundraise ready type of things and what really irked me about the entire thing is time and time again the advice I was getting was not to you know talk about this part of product development or or our customers it was advice was to be more like a man take up more space you know and, and just shout numbers at them know your metrics which you should always know but it was this almost like you should default to knowing every metric because the investors are going to assume, oh, I'm a silly woman and I don't know anything yeah. about women, uh, about numbers. Mm. Women don't know numbers. And so I was constantly told to just act more like a dude. Yeah. <laughs> and that was frustrating because mm. it's like we're a group of women and the way we're going to build our companies, the way we're going to communicate what we're building, the way that we're going to communicate to our customers is going to be vastly different. We've seen that already with really successful fintech companies here in the UK with Anne Bowden at Starling Bank, with Samantha at Money Hub, Romy at Pension B. And so we know that women can be very successful and build massive businesses. But I would argue even those three women approached it from a very different way than the average man who runs a fintech company. Um, and I, I think we just also, I think there's not a pipeline problem. We talk about, you know, women in tech. Are there enough women in tech? There are women in tech. You know, we have these lists of women who are brilliant working in banking and fintech. We need to, I think, if we want to see more funding going to women, also be building that pipeline of operators who have experience at early stage businesses who know what it's like to kind of do a little bit of everything, be a Jill of all trades, to give them the skills and the confidence that they need to go out and say, actually, you know, I've been working in sales for 10 years and I think there's something wrong with the enterprise sales pipeline and I'm going to build a SaaS company to fix that problem. There are women that are experts in their field. We just need to make sure that they know that they also can be the ones that are running the businesses because it never occurred to me that it would be my vision that we would be building towards. I was always, you know, 
Nina, the person, the operator who's going to execute on what you tell me to execute on, mm-hmm. and I'll do it well, but it never occurred to me that it could be me setting yeah. the vision and the strategy. So um, any women that are thinking about starting a business, please do and, and start thinking about how big it is. And, and the market that you have might be even bigger than you think it is because mm. mine certainly was. Wow. <laughs> Well, what a note to finish on there, Nina. Thank you so much for joining me today and best of luck with the beta phase as well now. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Hello and welcome to Chapter 3. I'm speaking with Ari Horier, founder and CEO of Women's Startup Lab. Thanks for joining me, Ari. Thank you for having me. So to start off with, you're the founder of Women's Startup Lab, which is based out of Silicon Valley. What was your motivation to set this up and how are you helping women on their startup journeys? Yeah, about 10 years ago, um, I was uh, working full time in the tech industry and I started having children and I realized um, there wasn't enough tech when I became a mom Mm. and I was shocked. And Mm. my mom became um, uh, sick. She had a cancer. And while helping her, I also was shocked to see how much technology wasn't there to help us. Then I realized what it means to not have a woman in the technology sector. Because mm. there's a everyday care, everyday um, things that women are heavily involved. I just didn't see the tech. The low tech wasn't even available. And so when I realized if we continue the path of not having women in the tech or women's voice or women's perspective, some of the industry truly suffer not having the opportunity to truly uh, bring the innovation. Mm. And so, you know, that was a first experience being a mom and caring for my mother. Um, I realized, wow, I never thought we have such a a gap in the society. Um, So that was the beginning of my awareness and journey. And then how have you kind of moved on from that? And how do you provide kind of active support to women through through the startup lab? Uh, started as a meetup. I felt many women's idea weren't understood mm-hmm. uh, among male engineers were available in, in Silicon Valley. And they often felt like their idea weren't good enough. And meantime, women understood their idea mm-hmm. because have a similar background. And so um, we often got together and went through their business idea and supported each other, how good it was or how we can make it better. And from there, we made it into Accelerator where we brought more advisor, investors advisor. And uh, since um, 2013, we've been running Accelerator in the Silicon Valley where we have a women entrepreneur applying around the world. And we usually host them in a two weeks residential program. And they come to Silicon Valley and we provide a number of education specific to women uh, entrepreneur development. Mm-hmm. And so not, not only about the entrepreneur development mindset, but we identify some of the pitfall of being women, how we're treated sometimes differently. and. Not say the society mistreat us that's not the whole point but being women sets certain challenges and it's better to to be aware and prepare and so that you can actually deal with some of the challenges 
fast and effectively so that you can put more focuses on your business than some of the challenges that we face. And it has been um, a long journey. And uh, over 10 years, I think there's a lot of women came through and they found their way to be successful. Um, often we might see in the media, the big exit, um, unicorn and, and, and keywords is uh, buzzing around, hmm. but women often are successful making a good business, but they might not be so noticeable, but hmm. you know they make their business bigger um, by raising children and being a community leader, leader and must still build her company. Um, I remember there's one woman from Ohio. She came in feeling so out of place and she thought she just wasn't a fit in Silicon Valley, but she was so excited. Um, she was discovered by a uh, co-founder of uh, Match.com uh, from my eventually uh, going through Women's Startup Lab Accelerator. Her company uh, not only got funding, but she gained a co-founder um, from our accelerators uh, network. And so that company is still around after seven years and raising fund and doing uh, a running successful business. So I think it's um, people often think uh, the startup founder should look a certain way, but often uh, it comes in many shape and the background and the way they grow their business is very different mm -hmm. uh, than what media and uh, puts out in, in the world. Mm -hmm. No, no, that's so interesting. It's such a, I think that comes up time and again with this is that there is this expected idea still of what a founder should look like or who they should be. But really, you know, it can be anyone with a great idea. And you touched then already on some of the, the issues that women face. But are there any, are there any specific kind of barriers that you find women are facing most frequently when they're trying to take these first steps into the startup world? I think there's many level um of course the things that we we hear uh, in the world is women are not getting a fair amount of a venture fund uh, we're still struggle women getting a venture fund less than three percent while number of women entrepreneur rising and nowadays it's a half and a half yet the fund allocation is not quite there mm. and everyday sort of challenges is um when they were trying to find engineers um, or maybe some of the advisor are male and they just want to build the company but along the way they express uh, interest in her and while you work six months of building the specs and ready to start building and then uh, this gentleman turned around and said um, I'm actually interested hmm. and then sure enough that I'm not interested then that engineer decide to leave. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it seems like all things happen like that. But if it happens so many times, you know, women entrepreneurs get so exhausted. Mm -hmm. And so I, I number of entrepreneurs um, expressed mm -hmm. that issue. And we were all realized how often it has happened. And then they actually resulted in having an offshore engineering team to avoid that sort of wow. <laughs> advancement and confusion. Yeah. Wow. So it's even a case of having to kind of outsource internationally to get around some of these issues. Yes. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's that's such like, like just even small things like that are such huge issues. And as you say, they affect many women. You know, it's a lot of startups. It's a 
it's kind of an unspoken issue really that kind of arises that people don't talk about it's quite it's quite incredible really yeah it um i didn't realize how much of that is happened and happening uh until i really started a women's startup lab um i didn't start women's startup lab thinking well there's a lot of uh, uh sexual harassment yeah <laughs> but when i started uh some of the women came to me and said hey can you host a hackathon and hackathon is a, a bunch of engineers come together and then some uh, people who has idea and over the weekend they split into the group and build something mm. and uh, she specifically asked me and there was tons of a hackathon so i said why do we have to do that you can just join and she said every time she goes to hackathon that's kind of some um some way uh, many entrepreneurs go there find their engineering team or cto or first the engineer the who built the prototype and so they go out and you know form a team or get to know people and she said well every time i meet someone they ended up asking mm. more and i keep having a problem so you know just like i i've mentioned before they continue to have like how about this how about you do this um the other uh cases were um Pot, uh, potential investor well that's what she thinks is a potential investor so she's really excited to and after a while they will be start text messaging um asking different things and then when she uh, turned down that's not what i'm uh interested and then uh she completely got um you know disconnected with that person and so i've not heard a number of things and you know while some of people say well that's normal things happen in society but you know when you're a business person you are putting so much of your effort and time and life to make this business happen and then you have to be always responsible for somebody else's interest that mm. gets in your way building a business you know imagine over time how much effort and 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 responsibility we ended up getting to just move forward because it's almost like like you were running and constantly something is coming in your way yeah and I, you know it's saying the just the men uh advancement but you know some some of the um extra burden we're expected to do at household and you know in some culture that's unspoken expectation the woman takes care of the household and children and so when your business is getting better husbands may say oh i'm supportive you can do it but then they'll say well as long as you don't bother me mm. or as long as i have to take children more than normal and so there's a many layer i think uh, they deal with and um i think often women entrepreneur not only building a business uh they become uh ceo of the family as yeah. well <laughs> juggle everything yeah yeah i mean you you do hear women kind of refer to that like saying that they're like the you know they the ceo of the whole family but like you say if you're trying to be ceo of a an actual company as well at the same time it is a huge a huge burden to you to try and juggle all these things at once and you know that's something that I think we've really talked about too much on this series yet is really about that kind of expectations both within a business and you know kind of externally as well that women have to to juggle to be able to do everything as they're expected to I think it's a it's a challenging and mm. interesting position that women startup labs in is we because we're in silicon valley we attract a lot of women mm. from different parts and um i remember one day one of the advisor came to me and said 
Ari, you are not training your women entrepreneurs to be more aggressive. And I'm kind of shocked. Oh, what do you mean? She said, every single person I just met today, none of them ask me if I'm investing now, and none of them ask for my money. If there were 10 men here in the Silicon Valley, every single one of them would be pitching, asking for money before we finish 15 minutes of advising session, but none of them. And so you're not doing your job. And I also realized um, having women, there is unsaid code that you have to be polite. And I first, I want to make sure they know that I'm polite and respectful and being like, then if it goes well, maybe I will bring up the subject of money, uh, possible investment. So, you know, I, I, I realized um, here's the Silicon Valley, we do things differently. And you have a permission to talk about money right away. And so we have to specifically say that because of some of the people where they come from, talking about money is something very sensitive and dirty. Mm. And so if you meet 15 minutes and that's what you said, that's the end of the relationship yeah. with anybody. Yeah. So things like that, what kind of allow men to be okay um, and some of the assumption uh, they're allowed to do, mm -hmm. and maybe we might assume uh, we're more careful about things. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, to kind of move on to another point, but still kind of talking about those kind of differences and the cultural differences as well, you know, so, I mean, you have, you're, you are Japanese and have a, a strong focus on Japan and, you know, that's my, you know, my, my favorite place Um, for anyone who doesn't know much about my background, but, um, you know, you you're over there right now, you're over in Tokyo, and you've been doing some work out there. And I thought it was really interesting because I write so much about the developments in Asia across the fintech space, across digital payments, etc. But I mean, from my own personal experience, I know Japan has not really moved on that quickly compared with some of its Asian neighbors. And I thought it was so interesting to hear from you really what your experiences are working with female entrepreneurs in Japan and what they're trying to do and you know I know that the Japanese government has come forward with a lot of support recently so basically I think it'd be interesting to hear from you kind of an update really on what support there is now for female entrepreneurs in Japan but also are there any specific issues that women in Japan face that might be different to what women in other countries in Asia who are trying to do something similar might face? Yeah, that's a lot of questions. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. Sorry. <laughs> well, one of the things uh, I think many people knows Japan as a very sophisticated uh, country and mm. women highly educated. Yet when you're just looking at the paper and it shows up as a number, we look like we're so behind. I mean, it is. We are behind. Mm. And... I think Japanese women are suppressed mm. and um, the number is correct where we are. But one thing that people uh, outside of Japan misunderstand is not lack of their effort mm. or lack of it, but the lack of a system and culture that allow them to thrive. And so sometimes outside uh, entity comes in, try to help women. They think women needs to be empowered and fixed and motivated 
And I think women in Japan have worked really hard, but systematically um, they had so much of responsibility and burden of childcare, household work. Um, it's been very difficult. Also, uh, the environment surround them, not many engineers, scientists that pursue entrepreneurship. Mm. And if you do, you are one sticking out of among others that who look at you like something wrong with you. <laughs> and you just don't get the support or you just don't have people that are like minded to have a similar conversation and says, yes, it's okay to pursue business. And yes, it is possible to think big and scale your business. Um, instead, people say, why do you want to have the business? Why do you want to make it big as if it's a negative? So, you know, while you just want to focus on the building the business, there's a lot of things they have to constantly explain. Hmm. And not having a support over time, I can only imagine how difficult that is. And uh, the motivation uh, tended to be diminished because you're just fighting to just wake up and, and walk before you even get to run. Hmm. That's how I some of the pressure um, in in Japanese society. But things are changing. Hmm. Yeah. And you were talking before to me around kind of the Japanese government now is being a lot more proactive in these things. So, you know, what, what kind of um, steps are they taking now? Yes, um, from this year, uh, Japanese government uh, made a full commitment to uh, change their uh, law and structure that startup can actually have a bank account easily mm. or lease this easily because it, it's a very conservative culture. So, you know, having uh, something I never really thought of having a problem in America to open the bank account became almost impossible uh, when I started uh, Amelis, which is Women's Startup Lab's non nonprofit division in Japan. Mm. Uh, so there was a number of the system issue. And uh, Japanese government is committed to transit some of the law so that more people uh, can start the business. And let's say if they don't succeed and they don't lose the entire house and um, uh, money uh, after uh, making not so successful business. So they try to have a more open uh, environment uh, for people to start business. Um, they're putting a lot of education as well for high school and college to pay attention to entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship is one of the options uh, to look forward for their uh, future career. Um, they're doing a lot of education for that. Um, also, really proud the Japanese government for the first time, they have this committed um, uh, focus on raising and developing uh, women entrepreneurs. Mm. Um, and I'm uh, very honored to uh, have that part of the project from Japanese government and the running um, a year-long program this year. Mm -hmm. uh, not only find those female entrepreneurs, raise hand, say, yes, I am interested in building business and I have a business I want to scale. And we're taking a 30 women entrepreneur to U.S., uh, specifically to Silicon Valley, Boston, and Washington, D.C. Mm. Uh, this year program to uh, January, February, which is quite new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those are happening. Very excited.
Yeah, that sounds like there's an awful lot of things in development there. So that sounds really exciting. So just to kind of finish now um, with what final point. So there, these women, say, for example, who are coming from Japan to the U.S., are there any issues that they face in Japan in terms of creating a startup that maybe women in the U.S. haven't experienced? I think being assertive is not something we've been taught to be mm. or having a permission to express. So I found that many of applications that I had to review to select those top female entrepreneur, um, they also play down what they do and what they have accomplished. So I remember last year when I looked at the application, I was so confused. They have a, a huge uh, annual sales and what they're saying is so small and downplayed. I was just didn't even understand what she do after all. Yeah. And I realized, okay, this is Japan first year. Uh, let me look at what they really mean. And when I actually have an event and met them, they were extraordinary. But mm. I realized with with the language, tend to be polite. Um, you're not supposed to brag. And so uh, when, you, when you're in the business world, the way they are taught to behave, um, it, they carried on in the business world. So mm. I think... Um, we often underestimate power of women from Asia or Japan because they're not um, allowed to speak powerfully and confidently or claim their fame. Um, and if they do in some culture, they get punished or penalized. So um, I, I have been uh, expressively uh, asking women entrepreneurs to be like the American. It, it could be anything, you know, I could say be like uh, Elmore, anything. But the point is just be different than mm. what you have done and to see if anything resonates with you. Mm. you know, talk big, you know, talk bold um, and, and speak up. What does it feel like? Because the way it's being taught, the way it's being done in Japan might have worked, but when you go outside, there's a whole another world that they're waiting to hear what you have to offer. Mm. And I think that's the biggest thing is that I think there is a hidden uh, jewel in Japan that need to come out. Mm. And it begins with them really having their voice and way to express it so the world can truly hear it and find the opportunity for them to rise and grab the opportunity that is massively available outside of Japan. Mm. So um, I can't wait to have that you know, opportunity and having the rest of the world seeing a bright, ambitious uh, women coming out uh, from Japan. Amazing. I think that is such a great note to finish off. You know, speak big and bold. That's such a, a strong message to go with. So, Ari, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Thank you. Welcome back to Chapter 4 in this episode of Disruptive Voices. I'm joined now by Ife Durusumi Eti, founder and CEO of Nigerian fintech Hair Economy. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Kimberly. I'm super, super excited to be here. <laughs> it's great to hear that. To begin with now, so Hair Economy provides services specifically for women to gain control of their finances. Why was it important for you to create a product solely for women? 
I love that question and I get this question <laughs> all the time. But I would like to start first from my background. Mm -hmm. So my mom is a lawyer by profession yeah. and my dad is a chemical engineer. Growing up, my mom gave up her career to take care of my sister and I. And mm -hmm. at some point, 17 years down the line, she wanted to start her business. And at that point, she realized that she had no savings. And Jeez. we realized that this situation was not peculiar to my mom alone. Yeah. A lot of women across Africa give up their careers. And when it's time for them to start a business, because they're not financially literate enough, a lot of them, even though they were getting maybe money from um, their spouses, mm -hmm. you know, upkeep monthly and all of that, but they, they never were investing or anything like that. So even if down the line they wanted to start anything, they realized that they had no savings. I went back and launched a community just to help women get back on their feet, mm -hmm. you know, support them through things like um, accessing grants and um, building up their capacity in either their businesses or their career. Mm -hmm. And after we grew to about 1,500 women and we got a lot of feedback from these women, we realized that financial services was at the top of their list. So beyond women not even being financially literate and them not having any savings, 57% of women in Nigeria today don't have access to formal financial accounts. Mm. So it was a big deal. So this meant that they had no access to loans as well. Mm. This means that they couldn't invest or invest, you know, um, with intent, mm. you know. And even the women who were working and earning an income, a lot of them were also financially underserved. Mm. So you would find that at the point of retirement, even though maybe some of these women who went through school and had good jobs, at the point of retirement, you'd find out that they didn't have um, similar assets mm. to, to their male counterparts, even though they were in the same roles, So which, which meant that they were not necessarily investing that income that mm. they were making. So I knew that I had to take this upon myself to educate women within the community. And from then, we grew to 1,500, uh, we grew to, sorry, 15,000 women and then we pivoted to financial services so we started very organically we were first a community and then we pivoted last year to financial services and it's been a beautiful journey since then yeah. i think it's so important like that we i did an episode previously which was on financial inclusion and we were kind of talking in that about like you you think financial inclusion is something like oh just helping people open a bank account and like mm -hmm. that that's the start point because mm -hmm. like you say then you know, things like retirement planning and mm -hmm. pensions and things yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. These are all, you know, the, the next step on the ladder. It's yeah. not enough just to say, oh, you can have a, a bank account with exactly. a debit card. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's so important for them to know that they can do more with their money. Mm. They can grow their wealth. And if you look at, you know, people all over the world, because they had access to loans, they were able to do so much more. Mm. I've seen men tell me that they started all companies, you know, with zero amounts and they were able to get a loan or, or this so-so-and-so bank gave them this loan. Mm. And, you know, they were not scared. But as women, we get scared when it yeah. comes to things like loans. But if you see other women who are like you, which is why we're building our own financial services solution very differently with community at the forefront of things. So when they see other women who are like them, mm. who are taking those risks, who are taking those chances, and in fact, they see women who are failing and picking it up again and starting mm. all over again. And they, so they know that it's okay to fail. It's okay, you know, life is all about ups and downs. But if you make the right decisions, if you're in the right communities, it's always easier for you to get back on your feet. So mm. we're seeing more and more women are making more um, or better financial mm. decisions. And when you even check the statistics, you'll see that women even pay back loans 
better than men. Mm. The women don't run away. The women are part of, you know, little um, hubs, mm. you know, so they're, they're more credible. You can find them easily. You know, they're taking care of not only themselves, they're taking care of their communities. They're giving back. They're sending their kids to school. They're getting better health care, mm. you know, opportunities. They're doing, like, they're taking advantage of health care insurance. You know, so it's, it's, it goes back to a lot of things. Yeah. And, you know, women, we can really, really contribute, which is why it's important for us to have our own, you know, financial independence. Mm, definitely. And to look now at kind of from the, the aspect now of you being a fintech founder, mm -hmm. what was the process of building the company up to its current stage? And, you know, this, this is something I'm always interested in. Like <laughs> when, you ha when you're, a f you're a founder and you have this idea and you want to create something, like how do you then manage aspects like, Learning about the regulation in the banking sector, for example. Oh, oh, this is <laughs> <laughs> it's a complicated. Yes, it's very complicated. <laughs> but like I said, we started very organically. I didn't even know that this was where we were going to end mm. up. You know, we started out as a community, like I said earlier. But because we started as a community, we had a lot of resource within the community. So we're able to get information faster and we're able to get help quicker. So for um, for our fintech, for example, I had people who were within the community, who were benefiting from the community, who eventually said, oh, I'd like to help you with things like finance because my background is actually uh, marketing and communications mm. so we got a we got somebody who came on board when it was time for us to do our fundraise and fundraising is super super key especially in fintech because mm -hmm. there's so many costs that come with just keeping the app on that yeah. you don't necessarily think about a lot of people think oh you know you don't have a building so you don't have a lot of costs and stuff like that but with fintech you know there are a lot of expensive costs especially from the beginning and it's all about customer acquisition mm. you know with financial technology for you know Whenever you're offering a service, especially when it's a B2C service, so business consumer, you're not just doing B2B. So for us, we had a lot of resources and we were able to gather information a lot quicker than, you know, other people who were trying to also get into the sector. So for us, work with the regulation... Mm. We literally started first, we, we did a lot of research and we said, you know what, at this point in time, how best can we start and be on the right side of regulation? Mm. So we first started as a cooperative. So we got a cooperative license in Ikoi. Mm. So this cooperative license allows us to accept um, savings from people who are within the cooperative. So we got that and we just, we just started growing. So right now, we're still a cooperative, but because we wanted to do things more, we've now partnered with um, credible financial institutions like asset management companies mm. and commercial banks. So a lot of people within our community who are saving with us know that their money is safe because the asset managers have custodians, so their, their savings are guaranteed. And not only are they saving money with us, they're also saving and getting high interest rates. So they're, mm. they're actually high-yield savings accounts. So anyone who is saving in, um, with her economy is getting 10% interest on their savings, which is a lot better than what you would get if you're even keeping your money with a traditional bank. And we're able mm. to negotiate these high rates because we have a pool of people. Mm. Right now on the app, we have about seven something thousand people who wow. are, you know, on our app. Some mm. people are saving, getting their high interest. Some people are using it as a day-to-day account. So we have like fixed deposit accounts and we have, you know, daily accounts that you can literally just withdraw money from. Yeah. Today, we've also added new features. We have like bill pay. Mm. 
yeah. you know, where you can pay for your credits. A lot of people in Nigeria do um, prepaid service, not postpaid. So you can get um, pay your um, for like your data, your airtime, and mm. get the two percent cash back. So mm. you're also saving as you spend. Yeah. So we're looking for different opportunities where women can go further with their money mm. and they can grow their wealth. We also have partners on the app who are passionate about women empowerment and passionate about putting more money in women's hands. So when you shop with those partners, you get up to thirty percent discounts across mm. different brands. So mm. we have you know brands like grocery stores. Yeah. We have. Um, hotels we have salons things that you do on a day to day you know so we, we we're building that ecosystem where women you know become powerful they have different options that they can they can choose from and you know we're just we're just growing you know very very organically mm. it's been very tough especially the the fundraising side um be- especially because people don't feel like um, because we're female focused so we have a few men on the platform mm-hmm. but we're, we, we're looking to build that platform where 80% of people who are benefiting from our services and products are women mm. right but we know that there are men who also believe in the empowerment of women yeah. so we're, we're all working together to ensure that you know the ecosystem and the world is a better place with women you know in it that's yeah. great yeah and you just mentioned briefly in that discussion around the importance of trying to get funding to be able mm-hmm. to build up a fintech, you know, and it's something when I was doing research reading about you, you've spoken before about this, about how difficult it can be mm-hmm. in the early stages to raise funds. Yeah. And that is the reoccurring theme of this podcast series and this whole, like everyone mm-hmm. I speak to mentions this and I am doing a, an episode on this coming up. And, you know, I just think what from your particular like standpoint what issues did you encounter then in trying to obtain funding and what do you think could be done better to help female entrepreneurs to access the financing they need to grow in the way that you have okay so um when we were trying to raise our first round so we raised our first round in 2021 um, what I did was I had spoken to a few VCs, but they didn't necessarily understand what I was trying to build. Mm. So I went back to the community and I said, guys, I'm trying to, um, you know, pivot now. And we're, we're trying to pivot to financial services. You lot have benefited from the community. So you, if you believe in what we're trying to build, join us on this journey. And we got literally like over 100 people you know, yeah. say that they were interested in investing. Mm. So we're able to raise $600,000 from the community wow. and also VC. Yeah. So we had two um, venture capital firms back us and as well as the community. Um, now we're actually in the middle of our fundraise for our um, seed round. And it's also been very difficult, you know, just trying to explain that, you know, we're female focused. A lot mm. of people are not necessarily used to that because they feel like you're neglecting a whole segment, which is obviously the men. Mm. But I tell them that we're female focused because we've seen the issues that women, women face. And there's a huge market, you know, for women. A lot of women are financially excluded. Mm. Women have been proven to, you know, pay back their loans on time and all of that. A lot of even the small business owners in Nigeria are all women. Yeah. So why, why, why is there no market, you know? There's a huge market. So it's almost like a chicken and egg situation where mm. you have to prove yourself. You have to show them that, okay, this is how large our portfolio is. You know, our assets under management, this is how much we're managing under our funds. People are interested in, in what we're building. And it's all about, you know, convincing people and finding the investors who are aligned with what you're trying to build, especially because for us, we also have community at the forefront of Mm. it. So it's only investors who believe that community is very important. Those are the people who have, you know, indicated interest in coming, you know, on board our new round. 
So yeah, it's very, very important for you to believe in yourself and, you know, create that table for yourself. So the table I created for myself, for example, was to do like a crowdfund mm. and I spoke back to my community. So I didn't just necessarily depend on VCs mm. to invest in to invest in the business. I went back to the community. So create your own table. Speak to other um, founders. You know, a lot of VCs prefer um, their portfolio companies to um refer you so speak to other portfolio companies look mm. for accelerator programs to join there's so many amazing ones i did the startup boot camp um a couple of my friends did tech stars some of my friends also got into y combinator mm -hmm. so you just need to speak to people who can speak on your behalf mm. and also sh put you through the application process because sometimes you have a fantastic business idea but you're not necessarily applying in a in a convincing way or you're not just putting down your your solution or your you know this solution that you created for this problem that exists you're not communicating it in the right way so speak to people who have actually gotten into those programs mm. and disguise your limits also promote yourself there are different platforms that you can use i leverage instagram a lot of my funding came through instagram <laughs> i literally just put up a google form and you know we got into we got a lot of people say that you know they were interested um so you can leverage instagram i leverage linkedin very well mm. i showcase you know some of the work that we're doing you know i try to tell people about the benefits i showcase the people that have benefited you know from the platform and nothing speaks better than testimonials so mo once mm. you continue showcasing you might meet somebody on linkedin who will reach out to you and say oh I'm interested in, in what you're building and they might, you know, invest or they might bring their friends on board to, you know, invest. I also got into Google's um, startup program. Um, it's called the Black Founders Fund. This year, they also invested in her economy. And that just also gives you that further stamp of approval that mm -hmm. your business can actually transform Africa, transform the world when organizations as big as, um, you know, Google can actually, you know, take interest in you, you know. So once you continue applying for some of these opportunities that exist, and Africa, there's a lot of focus on Africa today. So once you, once you, you know, align yourself with those platforms, once you continue, you know, showcasing, you know, your solution, the sky is your limit. It might be tough, it might be difficult, but you just have to keep promoting yourself. Mm. You know, I used to be very quiet when I was in my nine to five. <laughs> I didn't want anybody to see me. I just wanted to work in the background. But immediately I became an entrepreneur. I had to, you know, continue sharing, you know, all of the work that we're doing. And I've seen that it's paid off in terms of fundraising, in terms of um, product acceptance, in terms of building trust from the people or of the people. So you have to do the work. You know, you have to be your biggest sales salesperson. You know, you have to, you know, stand in the line for your business. You have to speak about your business. And, you know, the world just has to hear about your solution. Yeah, I think that's, that's something we've, we've already heard from some of the other um, chapters in this podcast about how important that own self-promotion is and even mm -hmm. if that really is getting outside of your own comfort, comfort space you do have to mm -hmm. just say hey this is what i've done look how great it is look <laughs> yeah. google have invested in me you mm -hmm. should as well look yeah, how great you know exactly and i think like for you know for some women that's you know because we're not really encouraged to mm -hmm. be like that mm -hmm. but you know to compete in this world yeah. you really need to do that you have so. to men will raise like millions of dollars off a piece of paper without any traction. Yeah. So why can't you? You yeah. know, the opportunity is also there for you, but you just need to step into that room and, Ooh. you know, speak. Yeah. 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 You just yeah. need to step into that room and speak. Yeah. yeah. Great. And then just onto the final question now. I mean, and we've already kind of touched on some of this. And, you know, I'm really seeing now there are more women kind of around in the fintech space and working in the space. But still, I think the perception is that, like, it is very male-dominated. But do you think there are women out there there's a real appetite to enter in this space do you think there are more women out there with ideas innovations that they want to 
explore and introduce? Do you see that? Oh, yes. I'm seeing a lot of women entering fintech, and we're not necessarily thinking about it as a male-dominated space. We're thinking mm. about it from a solutions perspective. What are we bringing to the table? You know, some of my friends are in fintech, but they're educating people on financial literacy, which is pretty much edtech, right? Some people have SaaS products, which is software as a service, yeah. where they're plugging into other um, businesses, you know, to provide a solution. So I'm seeing a lot of um, women entering the space and what is so beautiful is that there are a lot of communities that exist for tech generally and once you get into those communities it's easier for the opportunities to literally come to your doorstep so yeah i'm seeing more and more women taking advantage of of the opportunities and coming up with fantastic solutions in you know in the fintech space what we're seeing the 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 gap we're seeing is actually women in um tech actually like coding you mm. know when we want to get like higher like female CTOs. So for example, I really, really wanted a female CTO when we started. We hired one but she had to leave because she wasn't really feeling too well and it was very difficult for us to find another woman. So we ended up, you know, getting somebody who who was a man yeah. and he's he's such he's so you know passionate about women empowerment and all of that. So Finding more women in tech, finding more female programmers or even in cybersecurity, you know, is very, very difficult. So um, we're having to just work with the talents that we have and just try to see how we can, you know, promote the, the younger girls to take more opportunities mm. in tech. Because there's so many opportunities globally, you know, you can work from anywhere. There's remote work, you know, you're, you're, you have higher earning um, power in technology because yeah. the, the talent pool is very, you know, limited. So we're these days we're encouraging more women to get into tech we're also opening up our own doors so that they can come and intern while they're still in school mm. or whether they just finish you know um a course or something in technology and they also need to know that there are also other roles that they can do in tech that they don't necessarily need to code so for example product management you know scrum master mm. you know agile coach you know there are different opportunities that they can take advantage of and that's where we're lacking but you know women actually owning fintech companies we're seeing more and more women you know entering into this space and i'm really really excited because we're all collaborating with each other yeah yeah yeah, and I think that for me personally, like I've I know not have an experience of working in the tech space at all, but there are things like Scrum Master. Mm -hmm. I genuinely had never even heard of that until a few months ago, oh, wow. and it's like. <laughs> I don't know what this means. So mm -hmm. that I do think there is like a whole world out there of yeah. different roles that mm -hmm. you might not know even exist. Mm -hmm. You just need to, to dig a little bit. Like yeah. you say, it's not all, it's not all just coding based. Exactly. Exactly. There, yeah. yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, Ife, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great to speak with you. Thank you very much, Kimberly. I'm super, super honored to have been here. Thank you. Welcome to this final chapter where I'm speaking with Edwina Johnson, Head of Global Alloy. Thanks for joining me, Edwina. Thank you for having me. So in this episode, I've spoken to a number of women at the beginning of their startup journey, but you've seen the process of Alloy reaching unicorn status. So you've really seen that whole arc from, you know, kind of from that beginning stages right the way through to kind of the end goal that so many people have. What have you learned from this experience that you would share with other women at the start of their startup journey? Yeah. So I think a couple of things when, when thinking about like going into the startups and then uh, growing your startup uh, through those different kind of stages of growth. Um, and the first one is when you go and work for a startup, you get to work, uh, you get to work with people that you want to work with and you mm. get to choose the culture and the environment that you want to go into. 
and you can impact and shape that and have much more of a hands-on role in it, um, particularly at the early stage when it's a smaller company, mm. a smaller team. I often say that a, a startup culture gets set in the first kind of 10 or 15 people. Mm. So if you're one of those, you can have a really big impact and you get to say, actually, we're going to build this really diverse and inclusive team. Mm. Um, and that's going to be something that's important to us as a business going forward. And that's not something you can necessarily do going into a more traditional org at the start mm. of your career. Um, I think there's, you know, the whole journey is is risky. And particularly if you go in early stage, you might think like, why, like, why am I doing this? This is this is crazy. Maybe there's only a few months runway left or like, how, like, how is this going to pan out? Mm. Um, but actually taking that risk and thinking about what the experience is going to add to your personal journey and your personal story and experience and how you can shape that into your next career. Or, you know, if things pan out well and, and the business goes well, like how that will play out for you in the future. And then that kind of feeds into my next point, which is around the experience that you can get within a fintech, um, particularly one that's on a high growth trajectory. Mm. Um, at Alloy, going through our um, our journey, the business grew so much that it was essentially a different company every six, nine months. And the processes that you put in place or the ways of working or the, how you operated, everything changed and broke and you had to figure out like wh what gaps yeah. had appeared or what opportunities had appeared. Um, and that's great. So if you come into a business, um, you being really resourceful and being open to, uh, to kind of leaning into different areas and stretching yourself, you're going to get a whole bunch of experience and, and learning out of that. Mm. Um, and then, and then probably that feeds into the next thing, which is you don't need to know everything, um, yeah. and and you're you're never going to be fully equipped for this journey. Mm. Um, so don't um, kind of don't overthink. Like, am I am I you know skilled enough? Have I got enough experience in this particular thing yeah. to to go in? I think again, as long as you're resourceful, you can work with people, you can collaborate, you can find the answers to the solutions, and, mm. and being open to okay, this is not just in, um, you know, I'm not just going to stick within this particular job role, but I'm going to help and stretch and think about mm. how to grow and run the business overall. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. something that always strikes me, kind of not even just within the fintech space, but just people who have any kind of like business that they found is that maybe you have this great idea, you know, you have some experience in banking or technology, you've got a great idea, you want to set up your own thing, but then yeah. suddenly when you're in charge, you suddenly have to learn how to manage people, how to organize payroll, probably learn a whole load of like, yep you know, employee rights things, you know, like HR kind of divisions. And then within that, there's all the other different positions, like you say, that will arise over time. Maybe as you expand internationally, you have to learn all the things there. So it's such an ongoing, yep. never-ending process, it, it never, feels like. And if you, you know, if you thrive in that environment, if you love the challenge, if you love learning, then that's absolutely fantastic place to be. Mm. Um, I had that joining Alloy, and it was when I was based in New York, joined as a COO, was responsible for, you know, all of the people, HR things, all of the finance things. I had no idea about US tax or yeah. healthcare benefits or any of that, but you can find it out if you work with people and if you build a network around you. And, and then also as the business grows, you start to hire in these incredible smart people who know so much more than you yeah. and uh, <laughs> you can make the business more successful. Yeah, I think, it, and that's the thing, it's like, it's not just that you're going into this alone, it is a collaborative experience. It has to be because you can't know everything, you know, it's, yeah, exactly. it's too much. Yeah. <laughs> and you never, at the start of your journey, you never quite know how the business is going to evolve or where the products are going to evolve mm. or the market is going to change so you always have to be kind of open anyway to to learning um, and taking feedback and then putting that back into the business mm. 
And then to, to move on to the next point, really, about kind of your experience being a woman in this space, in the fintech space. I mean, how do you think that it's changed over time, your experience? And do, has have you noticed a difference maybe as kind of as, as alloys kind of grow? Because just I'm basing that around other conversations that I've had with women in this series who've kind of said, you know, you go into a room and you're trying to get, you know, investors interested and it's more difficult as a woman. And then like some of like, you know, you have to kind of fake it till you make it kind of thing. And how you, what stance you kind of take and like the expectations, like do you, you know, they, they kind of expect you to come in with all the numbers and everything, you know, more so than they would do with a man, some women have said to me. Do you find that as the company becomes more successful that maybe there's a little bit more leeway or maybe people are a bit more kind of, they're less pressurized and more you know there's just more freedom maybe i'm trying to say that like does the does the experience change or is it still yes. very much like it's yeah it does um it absolutely changes for when you're when you're a startup that has um you know like no reputation no real brand you've got you know maybe like a handful of customers it's very hard um convincing anyone that mm. that like come and join us we can't pay you enough money but we're gonna be great <laughs> or like invest in us we're gonna be great this yeah. is a market you don't understand but it'll be fine um much much harder and then as soon as you get traction and you start building that success story like completely dynamic changes mm. um and you're you're in like a very different power position within that um and i think as a, as a woman again you you're able to to benefit from the brand that you have behind you and that you mm. built as that business um, more so. Um, I think like having been in FinTech, both in London and New York for a few years, I will say there's been a like really positive change in terms of the communities that are developing. Mm. Um, there, you know, when I first moved to New York, there were no women in FinTech communities mm. at all. And that's why I got heavily involved in um, NYC FinTech Women, which mm. now has community of over 10,000 uh, folks across the US mm -hmm. um, but but just like finding those places where you can build your network and where you can uh, find other people who understand what you're going through mm. provide opportunities like those are great and it's it's wonderful seeing those um, you know thriving both in the states and back in in the UK um, and conferences or um, organizations like money 2020 who are doing specific programs to support mm. um, and promote women i think when i when i first started at startup Bootcamp, it, running a fintech accelerator innovate finance just launched their power list mm. and they put me on that list and mm -hmm. i think i'd been in the role maybe six months yeah. no prior fintech experience there must have been so many other women out there but they were just unknown not promoted mm. and not championed so seeing that shift now and seeing how many other women are out there that um that are getting a profile and getting recognized for their work in this industry mm. is, is fantastic mm -hmm. um but then you know on the flip side there's still um pervasive old-fashioned attitudes towards diversity um that exist and towards women uh, generally that you have to constantly fight and that's that's more of a societal thing mm. which which has naturally like overlapped into fintech, particularly mm. coming from the finance industry, um, and then on the investor side as well, the, you do get a mindset of like, why would we bother investing in diverse teams? Like, what's the value? Mm. Um, that must just be an impact or a charitable thing to be doing. Yeah, and they don't see the full like business benefit yeah. and the the end goal on on doing that. Yeah, definitely, and it's, I mean, maybe it's a bit unfair to say this, but I do have the kind of general learning 
just from life if often if there is women involved in early stages the diversity across the board just tends to be a lot more baked in absolutely um I think women are kind of more aware of who isn't around the table other than if it's just a load of men oh sorry to the men listening but you know it's kind of my lived experience yeah a lot of women that I've spoken to as well and I think that's so interesting the fact it's what you said in the start of the first question is around that kind of you are able to set the agenda when you're mm-hmm. early days in the startup as well of what a culture should look like as well so yeah. it kind of it gets things moving and really it early takes more effort and it takes more time and you have to be super intentional about it but it will pay off mm. hugely later on down the line so i uh, really really encourage folks to do that mm-hmm. great and on to my final point now which is kind of a a big question for you but you know this this episode I've focused really on speaking to women at the beginning of their kind of startup journeys or helping those at the beginning of their startup journeys and so I just wanted to ask you what advice you would give women who are entering into the fintech space maybe someone's listening to this thinking they have a great idea but they just need to have that launch pad to get started and also what do you wish you'd known earlier in your career so the first thing is that you you have a competitive advantage as a woman going into an industry which is male dominated. Mm. You have a different perspective, mm. you have a different way of leading, you have a different way of thinking about a problem. And so like lean into that difference. Don't, um, as I did at the start of my career, I thought, oh, to be a successful leader, I have to act a certain way and mm. think a certain way. Um, and actually just being really comfortable with the type of leader that I am mm. and, and realizing the huge value that I can bring to an organization because Mm. of um, how I operate which is different to the stereotype in in the startup world Um, another reminder which is probably across all industries is is that your work won't speak for itself it's more likely to be overlooked um, if you're from a traditionally underrepresented group and that is played out in scientific studies statistical studies and so it's just a reminder to always be having to promote the work that you've done the impact that it's had Mm. um and why like why you're doing why what you're doing is important Mm. so that's a kind of an evergreen reminder to um (laughs) to be promoting and networking and and talking about what you're doing um then the last thing i would say is that uh innovation and fintech has often been for the purpose of better serving a traditionally underrepresented group of people or giving better access or improving um, yeah, p- improving the offering that's out there. And so the whole concept of, of innovation mm-hmm. uh, in finance is to shake things up and do things differently. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, an opportunity for you to come in and um, in a space which is challenging the status quo is to find, is to help like shape and redefine mm. um, the role of women and the perception of women in the industry. So that's mm. something that you can lean into. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of just pick up on that point before we finish really about promoting yourself, like wh- wh- how and where would you do this? Like what what ways would you yeah. promote the, the work that you've done or what you've achieved? Yeah, I mean, it's from the very simple um, doing that internally, doing it to your manager, mm-hmm. you know, doing it with on a company-wide basis, to getting out in networks, to talking to people about, you know, about things that you've done. Um, so it's it can be on a very very small scale, sending an email once a week to your manager yeah. <laughs> to, to to more broadly try and get out there and and going out to conferences or podcasts or, or mm-hmm. whatnot. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with Edwina. No problem. Very welcome. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Disruptive Voices, a monthly podcast from The Banker. You can listen at thebanker.com, Acast, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.